When we finished seminary, we had a set of friends who decided to start a home business. It was the mid-1990s when the government decided that they were going to break up Mob Bell, and all of a sudden, you were going to have a choice for long distance. And they decided that they were going to make a change. He worked third shift. She worked during the day. They never saw each other, and they thought, we're going to sell long-distance phone service out of our home. And this is going to be great and wonderful. Several of you are already shaking your heads. Jenny and I knew, Jenny and I knew this would not work. It screamed, multi-level marketing, beware. And sure enough, he quit his third shift job. She quit her day job. And six months later, they were broke and two months behind on their rent and had to pack up and move to Ohio to move in with her parents. Jenny and I said nothing. We said nothing. My senior year of college, I lived with five other men, five other men, okay, this is important to know, in a house. And at that time in my life, I was an OCD perfectionist. And that OCD perfectionism translated into my room, into my apartment, into my life. And I wanted everything to be orderly because it was my way of kind of controlling what I couldn't control on the inside. And these guys were not like me. <laughs> but we had the cleanest college-owned house in the entire portfolio. When they would come in and drop their backpack or coat on the floor, guess what would happen? I would not only get hung up, but I would pick up their coat and jacket and take it to the bedroom and put it on their bed. Not a single one of those men ever sat me down and said, Max, we need to talk. This isn't just your house. We all live here. That's my backpack and my coat. You don't get to touch my backpack and my coat. You can ask me to move it. You can make a request of me, but that's not yours to move. No, not one of them ever did that. So then after college, I married Jenny. And Jenny is an ADD creative you know, whoo, her mantra for organization is organized chaos. <laughs> and so we were newlyweds living in a tiny apartment. And she says to me one day, man, my purse is so disorganized. The next day, this is church and you should confess the, church, uh, the truth in church. <laughs> So you may not remember anything else but the sermon, but you're going to remember this story, and you will not commit this sin. So the next day, I decided to clean out her purse without asking her and threw away something that was important that I did not deem important. Now, let me ask you smart, wise people who are gathered in the house of God today, was that a wise decision? No. <laughs> You didn't even pray about that. <laughs> I could have avoided that marital train wreck if only I had known. And when I say train wreck, I'm describing the reality that I placed myself in front of a moving train. And once it ran me over, it stopped and backed up <laughs> and ran me over again and had every right to do so. True friends are not blind. 
True friends are not blind. True friends see us the way we really are. They know our strengths, our truth, our beauty. They know our weaknesses, our warts, and our issues. Friends know the truth about us. And so the art of friendship requires encouragement and rebuke. Encouragement and rebuke. Friendship requires encouragement and rebuke. True friends are not blind, and they help us to see the truth. The good truth, the good truth, and the ugly truth. Because, as Jesus said, the truth will set us free. So let's unpack this. If you brought a paper Bible, I'm going to be in Hebrews chapter uh, 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Okay? This is written to Jewish Christians who were confused and tempted to give up on Jesus Christ and go back to Judaism. Okay? And this is what the writer of Hebrews says Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. Now, the author in this book is making a case, and the case he's making is, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. You know how you revere Moses so much and you, it's just like Moses this, Moses that. I'm telling you, Jesus is better than Moses. And that's the sustained argument of the book of Hebrews. And so he's warning them that if they're not careful, they could suffer the same fate that the Israelites suffered in the wilderness. They didn't trust God. They doubted him. They doubted God's goodness. Evil thoughts spread in their minds. Those thoughts became a posture, and that posture was grumbling, murmuring. Why don't we have any meat? Why did you lead us out here? Can I really trust that you have our best interest at heart, God? Like, ugh, you stink. And, and that attitude changed their character, the kind of people that they were. So the author of Hebrews says, be careful, be careful. And again, I want to point out that Dear brothers and sisters, that's that you plural that we talk about. So every time you read the word you in the Bible, does it mean you singular? No, it means all y'all. So every time you see the word you in the Bible, just translate it in your head because you're from Kentucky now, all y'all, <laughs> okay? Be careful then, all y'all. Make sure that all y'all with your all y'all's hearts <laughs> are not evil, okay? That's what he's saying, all of us have the potential to turn away from God. Max Vanderpool, you have the potential to turn away from God. Every single one of us has that potential. And so what's he talking about here? This evil, unbelieving heart. It's what the Bible calls a hard heart. All of us have the potential to develop a hard heart. And that hard heart usually starts with unbelief. It's what the author of Hebrews sees as the root of all sin. Back in the garden, in the, in the Genesis account of creation, you have Adam and, believe, Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are tempted to disbelieve God's goodness. They're tempted to take a step and say to themselves, did God really say, can we really trust what God is providing for us? We have to know on our own. And so they take that step, and they basically say, I know better than what God says. And so I'm going to take this step. And so over time, that becomes a hardened heart. Um, we, 
we say, God, you can't, you won't, you stink, I can't trust you. And I see this as a pastor play out all the time over my life, okay? Um, somebody will say to me, Pastor Max, I've met this guy, I've met this girl, I know I'm married, but, right? I know I'm married, but. And then before too long, they're saying things like, I just don't like church anymore, those people are so judgmental. And I'm like, that's called conviction, <laughs> okay? Um, uh, I'm mad at my mom and dad. They're such hypocrites. Uh, and before too long, that becomes, I don't believe any of this stuff anymore. You know, God's not even real. And so there's a process that the author of Hebrews spells out that works the same way today that it did 2,000 years ago when this was penned. And that's simply this. Many of us stop behaving before we stop believing. Let me say that again. Many of us stop behaving before we stop believing. Um, most Americans will stop church and religious activity, et cetera, and then before too long, six months later or a year later down the road, they're saying things like, I don't believe, I, you know, and that kind of stuff. When I was a sixth grader, uh, I had an issue before I came to Jesus. Uh, I loved lies. So when I was an elementary school kid, um, I didn't sport. You guys know that. And so in order to win over my cl classmates, I decided that I would invent all these stories of exploits that I had with my grandfather. None of them were true. Not a single one of them were true. But I would spin these stories, and they would be like, man, your grandfather sounds so cool. Man, you are so lucky. Man, what a life, man. That must be incredible to do that kind of stuff. Um, and when I said yes to Jesus, my lying had to be addressed. <laughs> it was like an issue. It was like, okay. So th the opposite of a hardened heart is an open heart. Okay. A, a tender heart is an open, teachable heart that's moved by God's love. So how do you prevent a hardened heart? Well, that's what he talks about in the second part of this little section. You must warn each other. And that word can mean several different things. So I'm going to put up the Greek word, and I'm going to tell you it can mean a lot of different things. Parakaleo, parakaleo. To warn, to urge, to exhort, to encourage. Okay? Parakaleo. Parakaleo. This Greek word is used to describe the kind of speech that a Greek or Roman officer, commander, would give to their troops before leading them into battle. So let me ask you smart, wise people, since you've already demonstrated your wisdom once today. Does a, does a general discourage or encourage their troops before a battle? Encourage. So if, if, a, if a general or a commander were to start off their stirring speech this way, you guys stink. Your discipline is sloppy. You don't trust each other. The enemy's going to wipe the floor with you. Now let's get out there and take that hill. Is that an encouraging speech or discouraging speech? Discouraging, right. There's a difference between discouraged and encouraged. Um, discouraged tends to be paralyzing, stopping, ugh, spinning. Encouraging tends to spur to action, okay? So part of what parakaleo means is to encourage, to affirm what is good and beautiful and true. 
in such a way that people are like, yeah, right? And they're moved to action. By the way, I want to compliment you teenagers on this. I've gotten a front row seat to the way teens are living life in America today. And they get a, they get a bad rap for a lot of reasons. Eh, teens today, they don't want to work, eh, this or that. I've watched, I've watched and listened to teens really lean into the encouraging part of parakaleo. I've been driving around in my car, and this is my daughter's part of a conversation she's having on the phone. And I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget it. Girl, you are so brave. I admire your courage here. I'm with you. You've got this. Those words came out of my daughter's mouth. I was like, wow, <laughs> that's really encouraging. Maybe you could say that to your dad every now and then, like, right? Okay, right? So last month, we had a, a blood drive for the Chamber of Commerce, and one of my chamber buddies had never given blood before and was scared to death about the process. And so one of the police officers who was helping with the blood drive, um, Jermaine, who's one of the popsicle cops, um, arms the size of tree trunks, like, you know, when he was there, he, this is what he said to me, because he's, you know, ribbing a brother, he goes, yeah, Max, I could get blood like five times a day. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you could probably get it all out of that arm right there. <laughs> like, that would be all of the blood I have in my entire body. <laughs> okay, but this chamber buddy was scared, and so this is what Jermaine was saying to this person all along. Hey, man, thank you for doing this. This is going to help so many people. I know you're nervous, but I see how you're stepping up here. You've got this. Squeeze that ball, man. Squeeze that ball. <laughs> right? Was Jermaine encouraging? Yeah. Okay, so that's part of what parakaleo means. And that's part of what we need to be doing to each, for each other as friends, is encouraging each other. But the other part of parakaleo means to warn, okay? To warn each other. And that means loving someone enough to, to warn them about a decision, a relationship, an attitude, a habit, something in their life that's going to bring about disappointment, loss, or needless suffering, okay? Parakaleo, to encourage, parakaleo, to warn. And it both has to do with that, okay? So when you see a friend who's about to make a bad decision, you should speak up. Jenny and I, back when we were just done with seminary, that set of friends who were going to sell phone service, we should have spoken up. My friends at Labar House at Wheaton College should have spoken up. It would have saved me a lot of headache with my wife. <laughs> okay? The writer of Ephesians puts it this way. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church truthing in love. In other words, how you say this warning matters as much as what you're saying. Truthing in love. And I want you to recognize this morning that you have a tendency. So in life, because of personality, some of us are way over here. My name's Max. I'm a prophet. I just kind of tell it like it is. Let the chips fall where they may, you know? People got to handle the truth. I just tell it like it is, baby. On the other side of the continuum is... Hi, Max, I really don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And if I see something, I'm probably going to swallow it because I don't want to upset them. <laughs> I don't want to hurt the relationship at all. And that's the continuum. So a good thing for us to recognize, for you to recognize, is where are you on that continuum? Do you tend to be a truth bomber, <laughs> truth teller? 
Or do you tend to be someone who swallows it and doesn't say anything because you don't want to rock the boat? Just because, again, it's church and you should be honest, I tend to be over here, okay? So the, for those of us over here, the God conviction today hopefully is say something, say something. The, for those of you that are over here, I hope the conviction is think before it comes out of your mouth. At least give it two thoughts. <laughs> two thoughts before it comes out. Okay? So know your tendency. Okay? So the, the author of Hebrews warns his readers to keep gathering together outside of the synagogue, and he warns them and exhorts them to encourage and warn each other. Okay? True friends aren't blind. They see what's going on in your life, and they love you enough to encourage and rebuke you. You need friends like that. I need friends like that. So let me ask a couple of questions in light of these scriptures. Do you have a friend who sees everything? Do you have a friend in your life that you've given permission to correct or rebuke you if necessary? In other words, you've said to them, hey, if you see me stumbling, if you see me messing up in my relationships, I want you to say something to me, okay? And then secondly, do you have a, uh, have you named for a friend in your life the good things that you see in them? Do you have a friend whose character or habits are admirable or commendable in some way? And have you named for them what you see in them? Okay. So I want to walk through some practical steps of how to rebuke a friend and how to encourage a friend. Okay. Ready to go with me? So how to rebuke a friend. First of all, first of all, Check your motives. Check your motives. Why are you confronting them? Is this out of love and a concern for God's purposes in their life? Or is it to make you feel better? Why you? Would someone else do better? Is there someone else closer to them or the situation? And then lastly, will what you have to say help them or crush them? Okay? The words and content can be tough, but you cannot be threatening, name-calling, or condemning, okay? So first, check your motives. And then secondly, I'm sorry, it's going to be awkward. No matter what, when you're rebuking a friend, awkward is going to be all over it. And you can't, you can't hide from that, you can't tweak that, you can't change that. So you may have a nervous stomach. You may have sweaty palms. You may fumble over words, which leads me to the third thing. It would be good if you're going to rebuke a friend to plan it out. What's the one thing you want them to see? In one sentence, what's the one thing you want them to see that maybe they don't see? Work out the phrases that you plan to use. And if you're worried about phrases, here are some from Justin Whitmill Early. I would caution you to look out for I've noticed you keep saying, be careful, friend, because I think you may be missing, this doesn't sound like you at your best, okay? Those are some good phrases in the rebuking, in the rebuking end of things. So, oh, by the way, when it comes to a rebuke, always rebuke in person, or if you must, by the phone, never rebuke by text or email. Never. Always rebuke in person or if you must on the phone. Never rebuke in text or email. And here's why. Words 
on a screen, they're heavier, they weigh more. And they're, they have the potential to be much more crushing on a screen, okay? So how to encourage a friend? Does this sound familiar? Expect it to be awkward. We Americans are great about seeing what's wrong with everybody and the world. We're really good at it. That's wrong. That's broken. These people stink. <laughs> we can do that all day long. But when it comes to seeing the right, the good, the true, we can sometimes miss it or fumble over it. So uh, expect it to be awkward. Secondly, plan it out. What exactly do you see in them that you want to make sure they see in themselves? And more importantly, what do you see the Lord doing in their life along the lines of transformation? In other words, how are they becoming more like Jesus? And how do you want to name that for them? If you want to make a lasting impression for this, put this down in writing. Send them a letter in the mail using a stamp. Remember those from the 1950s? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, or an email or a text message, something that they can go back to over and over again. Okay. And if I can talk to you parents for a moment who are in the thick of it. Hi, parents. Hi. Parenting's hard, isn't it? Oh, why does parenting have to be so hard? <sighs> okay. All right. I just needed to get that out. When it comes to your kids, please, please, please focus your encouragement on their character and habits rather than their accomplishments. Here's why I say that. America's, if your kid can ring a bell, if they can hit a ball, if they can lead a landing role, a leading role on a, in a play, if they can get all A's, if they can score really good on a standardized test, America will go, woo, you're amazing. You're all, woo, look at you. So as parents, what we want to do is we want to compliment them at the point of character development and habits. Hey, I've seen how hard you've worked on this project. And a couple of times I could tell you were ready to walk away, but you hung in there. That's real determination. That's a good thing, son. That's a good thing, daughter. Right? So uh, parents focus on character and habits. Okay? And so what are some phrases you can steal here for um, encouraging. I'm always so impressed that you, I'm inspired by the way you, you're so good at, I see the Lord working in you. You did so well when. We often resist rebuking or encouraging a friend because it's awkward and we don't feel we're positioned for it and we feel like we don't have the right words to say, but words have power and the truth sets people free. Jesus was right. The truth sets people free. The good truth, the ugly truth is, is something that can set people free, okay? And so we're good friends for each other when we're speaking the truth. The ugly truth, the good truth. And in this way, we help each other to finish the race to continue to become more and more like Jesus.